Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So trade tensions between the world's two biggest economies intensifying, with China vowing to retaliate forcefully against President Trump's threatened tariffs on another $200 billion in Chinese imports. Is it an escalation or is it a war of proposals? Joining us to discuss is Torsten Slock, Deutsche Bank's chief international economist. Torsten, always great to catch up with you, sir. Your view on what we're seeing this morning. Well, this is uh, basically a game of chicken. Uh, and it actually looks a little bit difficult at the moment to see who's going to deviate. Uh, what's pretty clear is that up to this point, uh, at least before the latest uh, retaliation announcement, the latest round, if you will, uh, it has looked like this was relatively small uh, peanuts in terms of the overall scheme of things. Uh, but the risk now with $200 billion that is in particular going to be hitting consumer products both opens up risks for equity markets, uh, equity investors. Uh, we are talking to, of course, asking the question, which companies will get hit, uh, which product groups will be get hit, and that uncertainty is just not helpful at all at the moment. And on top of that, of course, this also raises the reverse question, well, okay, but what is the Chinese retaliation going to look like? Yeah. Which also, of course, then means, and they said they would not only be on trade, it could also be other types of uh, retaliation. So uh, the game is on, and, and again, the game of chicken is full force ahead uh, towards each other here, and it looks very uncertain at the moment. So Torsten, given the price action we're seeing this Tuesday morning, I think it's always easy for narratives just to sprint away with themselves. I want to try and drain some of the emotion away from this. The story in the United States, does any of this derail the US economic story of growth and really strong growth? And does any of that, any of those concerns, make the Fed sit there and say, you know what, we need to slow down? Well, the important thing here is that um, the U.S. has still a significant tailwind from the tax cuts for the corporate sector. The Trump tax cuts are going to lift GDP growth to about 3%. If you type ECFC, go on your Bloomberg screen and look at the quarterly profile, you can see that the consensus expects GDP to essentially be 3% for the rest of this year. And with that backdrop, you're absolutely right to say, John, that uh, this is indeed a very, very strong picture. So for now, this is uncertain stuff where we just don't know how it escalates. But the problem is that uh, there's no holding back. It didn't take many minutes before the Chinese started announcing that they were going to do the exact same amount in return. So uh, what really is uh, becoming more uncertain here is not so much the GDP profile as such here and now. It's really much more the immediate financial market impact. And that is indeed the risk that if consumer companies in the U.S., if we have a broader impact on equities in the U.S., then, of course, that would certainly lead the Fed eventually to look at maybe revising some of their forecasts, including, of course, what rates will do. But it's still very early, but so far it looks very difficult to see who's going to stand down in this standoff that we're having at the moment. Torsten, it would be disingenuous of me to say we don't see signs of fragility. Um, we certainly don't see many here in the United States, but we do see a lot abroad in the global equity market and perhaps more specifically in emerging markets and emerging market foreign exchange. Do you see a feedback loop? into the United States anytime soon, Torsten, or is everything yeah, okay is, for now? This is not helpful at all for the EM story. The EM is uh, always, uh, not only in this situation, the EM is always challenged when the Fed raises rates, even if it's slow and gradual and cautious. So adding 
on top of that, a trade war, uh, which uh, with China is directly related to EM, but uh, also from a U.S. perspective, has been hitting indiscriminately uh, emerging markets and also OECD countries, uh, is indeed not uh, particularly helpful for the EM outlook. So that's also why uh, uh, the EMFX going down has been a theme for a while and probably will continue as a result of this. Is it near a trip point? I mean, are we at a point? I mean, on a log chart, it's got convexity, which means a curve, which means acceleration. We are accelerating in our EM depreciation. That can't go on forever, can it? No, and the problem for EM is that they also have their own problems. I mean, forgetting the trade war for a minute, EM already has some idiosyncratic stories with Argentina, Turkey, Indonesia, elsewhere, I mean, stories are beginning to pop up that uh, do look as slightly more worrisome, even in a longer-term perspective. So you're right to say that um, the tripping point here is probably uh, closer in the sense that the, the risks are higher than what they've been for a while. The good news, if you will, is that mm-hmm. uh, at some point we'll run out of uh, stuff to put tariffs on. In other words, there's a, 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 a finite limit to the size of the U.S. trade deficit. So in that sense, uh, then it will, from a political perspective, both in the U.S. and abroad, then policymakers need to come up with whether they want to take this to outside <clears throat> only the trade area, or is this just going to stay only inside the trade well, realm of things? But Torsten, this is important, and Peter Hooper and your work at Deutsche Bank has been, and frankly, with Dominic Constant and Alan Gruskin has been legendary on this. All these institutional troops are saying, we're in control, we know what we're doing you know, maintain calm, remain calm, remain calm, remain calm. Baloney. These are big moves that we're beginning to see. Is it the same remain calm as 1996, which was before 1997-98? Well, it's clear that uh, the tide is uh, going out, if you will, in many emerging markets that have been helped a lot by commodity prices being high. Now commodity prices are, thankfully for emerging markets, uh, of course, slowly moving higher again. Uh, But it's pretty clear that uh, a number of emerging markets have significant imbalances on top of their political problems. Uh, So uh, the risks are beginning to appear more significant than they have been for a while, which also speaks to being more uh, worried as a global investor. In the time that we've got left to you, Torsten Slack, really nothing matters here. There's like important trade dates, like I think July 10th, John Farrell is an important date. None of that matters compared to 10 a.m. June 26th, which is next Tuesday, which Torsten is Denmark, France. Does Denmark have half a chance? <laughs> Torsten, does Denmark have half a chance against mighty France? I will be sitting with my hat and my scarf on and cheering them on. I think uh, they did do very well against Peru uh, last Saturday, but uh, we'll see. It's a very exciting, but even in the World Cup, you know, it's been uh, games have been surprising. Both Argentina and Brazil surprised uh, to the downside. So we'll see uh, see where we go on that front. I literally had no idea where you were going with that date. There, I was wondering. I was wondering what on earth is he talking about? Were, what happens when, that day? When you were well, doing England s- is also playing, John. Oh, that's, really? That's true. <laughs> We did see the last few minutes were pretty good yesterday. Uh, well, they? against Tunisia, Torsten, you'd hope that England beats Tunisia. I think it's going wait, to be wait, a completely different wait, game wait, against wait. Belgium. Does Tunisia play Peru? Tunisia's not playing Peru. Okay. Yeah, Tom, 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 Torsten, honestly, don't get into it with Tom Keane. Otherwise, you're going to be here ages. Torsten Slock, it's great to catch up with you, sir. Thank that's you very like, much that's like for your insight. That's like the playing the Tigers. Deutsche Bank's chief <clears throat> international economist. Yep.
Vincent Reinhardt is a good person to speak to. He's with Standish, uh, part of BNY Mellon, with Standish as their chief economist and investment strategist. And Vince, the dollar on a blended basis, just one quick look, DXY, is now out two standard deviations strong, which is a measured move, which clearly elicits measured conversation from central bankers. And there'll be a point where it's not. How close are we to where strong dollar dynamics begin to affect the model, the forecast, the factors that major central bankers look at? At this point, they always turn to the syllogism, and the syllogism is monetary policy has to be forward-looking. You make an outlook for the economy. If you don't like those outcomes, you change policy. Any variable that matters for your outlook, therefore, influences policy. Exchange rate, equity prices, interest rates, they're all things that matter for your outlook for real economic activity and inflation. And so they have to pay attention. Uh, The bottom line is when will financial conditions actually move from accommodative, where they still are, to tightening? Yeah, but syllogism, I mean, Merriam-Webster's got it as a deductive logical scheme. You know, Vince, more than, I mean, you saw this as as you worked at the Fed for years, all of a sudden, the deductive logical scheme doesn't work. How close are we to where Draghi or Powell's deductive logical scheme doesn't work? So uh, you want to separate uh, management of a macro economy and management of financial crises. Uh, I was talking about the management of the macro economy. They, they think about their outlook. They think yeah. about where they're sitting right now, uh, and then they go forward. In terms of management of the crisis, uh, crisis the first uh, talking point in your playbook is uh, try to keep a low pro- profile if you possibly can. Uh, Jay Powell's been pretty quiet over his tenure in terms of uh, intervening uh, verbally to big swings in markets. And indeed, you listen to him in his press conference, you listen to him in, in his uh, congressional appearances. He's got a higher hurdle uh, for financial upset than I think his immediate predecessors. I think you've picked up on something quite important, Vince. Um, I certainly witnessed last week the most bullish, optimistic Fed chair news conference I've seen post-crisis. Um, do you think that was justified, Vince? Uh, I think the you know the the plain fact is Jay Powell is uh, overseeing an economy that's doing better than its advanced uh, economy peers. Uh, he's looking at a lot of domestic momentum. He remember we have a, we have considerable uh, fiscal stimulus, uh, and uh, so there and an unemployment rate that is arguably well below its natural rate and headed lower with on. on employment, you know, gaining on average something close to 200,000. How long can it go if the global economy is is not doing well is a very open issue? How long can it go if financial conditions tighten considerably? That's an open issue. I think the Fed's got a problem, perhaps not for this year, uh, unless obviously we go from macro management to crisis management, but they got a problem in 2019 uh, about knowing when to stop. And how do you think they tackle that problem, Vince? 
Uh, I think that you, you, know, you, you nailed it when describing Jay Powell at the press conference. What, what, are, what are his favorite phrases? I stick to my own lane, and let's not overthink this. Yeah. Uh, he is going you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, right? He's just going to keep raising rates until uh, it seems like it's time to stop. And, Vince, uh, and they're hoping that they'll get a sense of what the neutral rate is when they're close to it. And, and Vince, as a chief economist and also an investment strategist, and asked you to put the investment strategist hat on now. Do you think, therefore, there is more juice to squeeze in that flatter yield curve that we've just seen throughout this year so far? Uh, it's, there's a lot of reason to be short duration. Uh, why? Because the market hasn't yet priced in enough uh, of a Fed tightening. I think they'll go four times uh, this year. Yeah. Jay Powell seems pretty confident about it. I think he owns a December move. He was the he was the shifting dots between March and and, and June, uh, and so I think short rates will rise some more and long right. rates won't rise as much. Can we sustain the economic growth when you look, Vince Reinhardt, at the mix of economic growth right now? Is it more sustainable than consensus beliefs? Uh, so the first thing to remember is, as you know, Tom, is, is expansions don't die of old age. Uh, the second thing to remember is the advantage of having gone through a severe financial crisis and a wrenching recession is it takes a long time to build up excesses. And we don't really have a lot of evident excesses in the domestic economy. Uh, so in that environment, uh, we, we, we could go for a while. But again, uh, we need a, a stable global backdrop, and, that, and that's what's at risk. What's at risk is, is how economies intersect. They intersect in the foreign exchange market. And if we're growing fast and our trading partners aren't, the dollar's going to appreciate. And I think the lesson of 2016 and 17 for both the U.S. and Europe is the foreign exchange rate really matters. It was a bigger drag on our activity last year. It was a bigger boost to to the euro area last year, and we're just seeing that, that swing. Yeah, but I, I mean, just Stein and Andrew Van Dam had a great article in the Washington Post this weekend on the X percent of Americans who just are seeing wages flat. I mean, I get it's a make America great again economy, but from where you sit, Vince, with your decades of, 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 of nitty-gritty research, is the dispersion of those benefits touching Americans? Well, the first order problem is we're not generating a heck of a lot of productivity. And productivity allows firms to, to share some of the, the gains with workers. And in an environment in which output power isn't increasing, there are no gains to share. Second part is activity is more concentrated. It, and that that's associated with a declining labor share of income. That's a, associated with strong earnings growth. Uh, it is kind of striking how much better corporate America is yeah. doing than 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 workers. Uh, that that does suggest we have a, some some medium and longer term problems. Well, Vince, thank you so much, Vince Reiner. Greatly appreciate it. it was Standish today on television and radio uh, with us as well. Uh, my interview of the day, without question, was the finance minister of Indonesia. It was important to speak with uh, Minister Ruadi, uh, uh given what's going on in China and with trade. This is the next one. This is Edward Alden, quickly today. His wonderful book, Failure to Adjust on Trade, it is definitive. 
And Ed Alden, uh, just very simply here, what is the difference in the scope of a four-factor on planned tariffs from 50 to 200? How does a guy like you synthesize that? Well, I think, you know, the, the key thing here is, is, A, obviously it's a very big number and it's going to force a Chinese response. But, B, you have to look at the size of the tariff, 10%. What this tells me is the administration very much intends to put these tariffs in place and keep them in place for a while. If you go back to the fights with Japan in the 80s, the threat was always 100% tariffs. Prohibitive tariff would have blocked exports of, you know, Japanese machine tools or semiconductors or whatever you have you in the United States. Right. And the point was to force a negotiated deal. This really appears, the intent really appears here to be to put that tariff and keep it in place. And Trump's theory right. is somehow that'll help rebalance the trade relationship with China. It's a different strategy. Chapter one of your book, The End of the World's Greatest Autarchy. And, and the, the basic idea here is America goes it alone. That seems to be a foundational belief of the president. Can we go it alone? I don't think there's any way we can, but if you look at his particular form of nostalgia for a time when the United States dominated the world economy and really didn't particularly need cooperation from its allies, that's what he wants to get back to. It's just the world is a very different place than it was 50, 60 years ago. We're a much smaller percentage of the world economy, and our ability to tackle these issues depends on working with like-minded partners. The president has decided to go it alone, and, and, and we are you know, now on the verge, really, of, of a trade war with all of our major trading partners, not just the Chinese. Edward Alden, how does the United States stack up in terms of economic competitiveness? Oh, very well on some things. You look at innovation in particular, our venture capital sector, technology, we still have some important uh, advantages. Where we tend to fall down are things that require sensible government of one sort or another. You look at infrastructure, um, you know, we're lagging behind a lot of different countries. Our educational system has enormous challenges. We're starving, you know, public universities increasingly. Um, places where some sort of intelligent kind of government business cooperation is needed. We really do lag other countries, and, and that's a challenge for a variety of political reasons we do not seem able as a country to address effectively at the moment. You've written about U.S. trade and investment policy. Give us an update if you can. Well, the update is, you know, we're moving in a very different direction here. So obviously much more kind of openly protectionist on trade. We haven't really seen the shoes drop yet on investment, but the forgotten part of this response to China is going to be restrictions on Chinese investments, either through congressional action or directly through administration action. So, you know, we've kind of moved from a position of pushing for greater openness to goods overseas, pushing for greater investment opportunities overseas, to restricting access here in the U.S. market. That's a big change in direction for the United States. Ted, one final question uh, today. How should China respond? I mean, they've got a a cultural template that they will use to respond. But if you were advising President Xi, what would be his best practice now? I would advise them to work with other countries that feel agreed by the United States, go to Geneva, offer to restart serious talks in the WTO, say, look, there's got to be a multilateral solution to this problem. China's benefited enormously from the multilateral system, but so have other countries. We, the Chinese, are prepared to address some of these challenges, but not bilaterally with the United mm. States. The problem for my conversations with the Chinese is they want to deal with this bilaterally with the United States. And I don't think that's going to work out well because I think Trump is going to push harder and the Chinese are going to feel like they have to push back just as hard. That does not end well. Ted Alden, thank you so much for the Council on Foreign Relations. Can't say enough about his book, Failure, 
to adjust how Americans got left behind in the global economy. It was prescient a year ago, maybe it was 14 months ago, and now, Pim, it's just lights out. It's one of those three or four, it's gotta be my next book to read. I mentioned earlier, our interview of the day was the finance minister of Indonesia, that with all the tariff discussion and that. But for our listeners coast to coast, Susan Tager is probably our interview of the day because she is with Bain & Company, like the management consultant crew, not the private equity shop. And she is knee-deep in the Amazon effect. She is senior director retail and consumer product practices And I want to go to real estate first. Coast to coast, I get tons of mail about all the empty real estate. And my Econ 101, like you took at Duke years ago, is price adjusts and rental prices come down because there's so many vacancies. Why isn't that happening? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And I think you're right. And you've asked a great question. I do want to step back slightly just to acknowledge that consumer spending, consumer sentiment, people are shopping. All of that is strong. Oh, come on, but the stores are vacant. New York, every every place this radio show is, the stores are empty. So what I was going to say is the retail and consumer spaces are seeing a massive amount of turbulence underneath that fairly buoyant perspective. There's a lot going on. Uh, You mentioned Amazon. We're looking at Amazon growing to be about 50% of all online sales in, what's it now, in the U.S. Uh, no, when you look at their gross um, merchandise value, which is right. the, the value of the products that they're selling, not just the portion that they're taking a take How much rate is it? on, they're probably now in the 42% of online share Okay, so you've Americas. got a model out 42, that's amazing, 42% out to five zero. It's going to go up to about 50. Yeah. We believe they're continuing to outgrow other retailers in the online space. And as you know very well, they're moving into brick and mortar with their acquisition of Amazon, with acquisition of Whole Foods, their opening of bookstores, which is rather ironic. But the key here is, and Bain's belief is frankly, uh, stores are not dead. The vast majority of retail sales still takes place in stores, but the role of stores have massively changed. Mm What you're seeing is in retail is not Amazon killing retail. What you're seeing is lack of innovation killing retail. And when you go to many stores today, they're the same as when you and I were kids. They look the same as many, many decades ago. Yet the retailers that are winning are thinking about the end-to-end consumer journey, shopper journey, which is both online and offline, and using both physical and digital assets to make that a great experience. Well, you know, when Tom used to shop, Mr. John Watermaker used to walk him around the store. (laughs) And, uh, you know, one of the things he did was he actually spent time with the customer. And now, of course, you have the introduction of electronic devices such as Alexa with Amazon. And I'm wondering if you see that as an opportunity for smaller retailers to now be able to have a bigger relationship with the consumer in a way that they could never have before. Exactly. There is a tremendous amount that we talk about at Bain & Company in terms of the 
entitled consumer or the empowered consumer, and a lot of that is fueled by technology. On the flip side, you also see massive innovation and opportunity for retailers to transform how they deliver okay, their services. Okay, give an example of that because most of the retail sell side we talked to doesn't agree with that. In terms say, of innovation? They say retail's getting crushed. They've tried this, tried this, tried this, tried this, and Amazon's cleaning their clock. But, it, but so they're what's a niche an, products. I what's mean, they're an a niche. Okay, come on. There's niche products. But what's an example of a major department store innovation which is allowing them to compete? Sure. Well, let me actually step back a little bit because there are lots of stores that are doing well by combining what we describe as omnichannel or the best of both worlds in terms of taking what's great about digital. Earlier, you were describing your experience of eight clicks. I found what I wanted. It saved me time. That's terrific. With the best of physical, which to to your point is sometimes that personalized service, that experiential opportunity, that community environment. And so you do see a lot of stores thinking about how do I use my space differently? How do I create that relationship with a customer? We're early days. Is, is anybody mm. doing everything right? Absolutely not. But we're working with lots of retailers that are taking small bites at the apple and truly transforming lots of different things. Okay. I, I want to focus. And this, I have no relationship with the company. I don't even own their <laughs> shoes. But Allbirds. I'm sure you're familiar, with, familiar Allbirds. with Allbirds. And if people are not familiar with Allbirds, they should check it out. Because if you go anywhere in Silicon Valley, this is the shoe of choice. Correct? Lots of people are wearing Allbirds. Okay. The reason I bring this up is yeah. because every sale that they make is a sale that a major department store didn't make with their own generic brand. It's a different brand. You know, This Allbirds is an example. We recently did some research, uh, more on the consumer product side, but the same is happening in apparel and footwear, into what we call insurgent brands. And insurgent brands are, in the consumer products world, they're only about 2% of sales, yet they're capturing 25% of that growth. And when you project that forward, we think that that's only going to increase and capture about 30% of growth. And part of what's happened is some of the traditional barriers to entry or traditional scale advantages that companies had, particularly in the consumer product space, have changed. You no longer need scale advertising budgets to reach consumers. You no longer need the, the, the uh, you know massive budgets to get that secure shelf space to secure well you give them an email newsletter and you offer exactly. 10 percent off for the first exactly. purchase and then you know you say tom all right you like these you shoes go. we'll sell you uh we'll sell you some more the trick here though is you know all is not lost there are new advantages of scale that are emerging and there are new opportunities for some of the the bigger brands to survive so, for example, data, you know, some of the larger companies have more access to consumer data than you could ever imagine. And the ability to use that technology to customize the experience mm -hmm. is unprecedented. So retail in particular right. has always been a blend of art and science. That has always been the case. But what we're seeing today right. is the science has elevated and become more accessible. And that's what, what's really right. going to make a, a winning retailer. On, on, on an income statement of yes. a major retailer, where's their biggest headache right now? 
That's a great question. I think um, I would say it's actually perhaps on their balance sheet in terms of capital commitments that they need to think They've about. They've got too much capital commitments. they got to go more to invest in technology versus the more traditional Amazon hardware. outspends most traditional retailers in terms of technology mm-hmm. by a factor of five or six to one. And that is creating a competitive advantage right. that retailers okay. need to catch up one, with. One, go ahead, I, I was just going to ask one quick question. That sure. If you were reading a due diligence report on any retailer, whether yes. it's a established retailer or someone that's brand new, if they don't have a page that is specific to how they respond to Amazon or deal with an Amazon world, do you kind of give it back to them and say, go, go do your homework? I would do that homework for them. <laughs> To be honest, you know, Amazon is a big threat, but let's face it, they're not winning everywhere. And there is a very proven understanding of where they are a threat versus where they're not. You mentioned earlier they got 40% or so of of the market and you're extrapolating out to 50%. Yes. We did that on Google search a million years ago and Google just kept on going granted incrementally. What's the ability of Amazon to go 50, 51, 52, 53, 54? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I think the the two things are happening. Um, In their early days, they did not uh, have the wrath of many other uh, players. And many of the big companies are are making bold moves in order to catch up. So there is more competition. The second thing is they're moving into categories that are traditionally more difficult. Susan Taker, thank you so much. She's with Bain & Company. Please come back uh, again. She does retail. Uh, the salvation of retail. She's vice president, salvation of retail for Bain and Company. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.